You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 453. Remember, it costs nothing to encourage an artist, and the potential benefits are staggering. A pat on the back to an artist now could one day result in your favorite film or a cartoon you love watching or a song that saves your life. Kevin Smith. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur Method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Well, guys, you are in for a treat today. As promised, I'm bringing to you an icon of the 90s independent film scene. Today's guest is Scott Mosier, the producer of the indie film classics Clerks, Mall Rats, Chasing Amy, Goodwill Hunting, Dogma, and many, many more. It was truly a treat to talk to Scott and ask him questions about what it was like to be there at the beginning, essentially, of the independent film movement as we know it today. I mean, Clerks is one of those just legendary films in the independent film world and to talk to somebody who was there as it was being made, what their mindset was, how they got it made, his backstory of film school and how he really fell into this whole thing with uh, with Kevin and kind of going on that journey with Kevin Smith. And, uh, and then also we discuss how he's transitioned into being a director in his own right, where his last film, The Grinch, grossed a half a billion dollars in the worldwide box office, and how he got into animation and, and so much more. This is just such a wonderful, wonderful conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you guys. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Scott Mosier. I'd like to welcome to the show the legendary Scott Mosier. How are you doing, Scott? Uh, the legendary Scott Mosier <laughs> is not here. <laughs> well, then we'll just deal with the Scott Mosier that's in front of us. Yeah, Scott Mosier is here. Uh, I don't know about the legendary, but I'm good. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I've uh, I've been a fan of 
of your you're producing for a long time and you're directing. My kids are now fans of your directing as well, which we'll get all into that uh, in a bit. But um, you know, many of uh, many of uh, my listeners know that you you know kind of got your start in Clerks, uh, working with Kevin and getting that whole thing going. Um, I have to first tell you when I first saw Clerks because you and I are similar vintage uh, as far as age is concerned. So I'm, I'm, you're you're looking at I'm about to what's today. Uh, Friday on Friday I'm a week so today's February 24th so March 5th I turned 50 I'm wow. like so yeah you're a little bit you're just slightly a bit older I'm 46 so we're we're in similar we, we we've crossed over the yeah. same bodies uh, yeah. <laughs> in the bits in the business so um when I first saw clerks I was so upset because I was working in a video store <laughs> I was just uh, like it was right in front of me. Why didn't I think of this? It was like literally. I was. I worked at a video store for five years, and I was just like, "God <laughs> damn it, man!" I was so upset at myself. I'm like, "Why hadn't I thought of that?" That, but you guys, you guys did it. So, how did you get involved with Kevin? How did you get involved with Clerks and and that whole kind of crazy story? So, I mean, you know, I backing it up. It's like I was probably, I guess I was like fourteen or fifteen. Or even younger than that. It was like Raiders of the Lost Ark was the movie I saw where it wasn't just that I was like, oh, I love this movie. It was more that I was like, oh, what is, how do people do this? Like, you know, that it's a constructed thing. You know, like it, it became, I became aware that it's like, oh, people made it. It didn't just appear out of thin air. And so then I started getting released in film and then, you know, ultimately went to the Vancouver Film School because I was living just outside of uh, Vancouver, BC. So, um, and so Kevin and I both just sort of independently ended up getting in, we're in the same class. Uh, it was like the 25th, 26th, like they were, in, they were numbered. So the school had just opened and we both went because our grades weren't that good. And so it was like, this is a tech school, right? You just go, it's eight months, you're in and out. Kevin, um, so we arrived there together, we kind of become friends, but Kevin is the one who came with a plan. Like Kevin had already sort of, um, he was working in a convenience store and the video store back and forth. And so he kind of went there with the intention of like, I'm gonna learn how to make a movie and then go back and make the movie with my friends. And then we became friends. And so it became like, um, around halfway through the program, it's like at the four month mark, it was like 10,000 all in. And I think at the halfway mark, it's like you had to put in your next 5,000. And Kevin was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go home and get my job back and you stay and finish the term out and learn how to <laughs> learn whatever's left to learn <laughs> as far as like, all that was really left in the back half of the that um, four months was we switched into doing these sort of narrative 16 millimeter shorts. So you worked on like two, I think, or one. No, you just worked on one. Um, and uh, and so Kevin left to save the money to put towards the movie, and then I stayed. And that's when Dave, like Dave Klein, was in our class, who is the cinematographer on Clerks. And he, um, we had kind of known each other, but as soon as Kevin left, like then Dave and I started hanging out a lot. And so by the time we graduated, so it was like March of 90, 
two. We start class October. We finish. Um, and Dave and I are friends. And then after that, we started making like there's all there's a bunch of people, you know, there's like a community of like people who've gone to the school and they were making short films outside of the 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 program. And so I was I was editing one. I was the editor on one and, and I was the dolly grip during the shoot and I was doing it. I was cutting it at night and Dave had shot it. And so we were all just kind of around with Kevin in the meantime. I remember working on that short when I was dolly as the dolly grip for whatever reason. And um, that's when I read uh, Inconvenience or the first draft of Clerks. So that was like probably November of 92. So we meet in March of 92. By November of 92, I have the the draft for Clerks. And then, and then from there, we were going to shoot earlier, but then um, there was a big flood and Kevin's like house was flooded and right. his car was flooded. And so he couldn't do it. <clears throat> and so we, um, we postponed it till March. And then I was prepping in the morning to rent equipment. Like I was getting up like really early at like 5 a.m. to call houses in New York to rent camera equipment. And We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I, we had sort of talked to, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stories, but we had talked to, you know, we talked to one DP who was in New York. He's an older guy who had his own pat lighting and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember Kevin and I was talking and like, this is totally, I mean, look, it all worked out. So, but I remember, I remember being like, I remember distinctly feeling like, Oh man, like if there's that one guy who knows everything and we're just complete neophytes, it's like, it kind of, we, we both were a little bit like, it feels wrong, like, you know, or it feels like it just felt like the wrong mood to have this person who was always like, you can't do that. And you have to do this and you have to right. do that. I think we were just selfish and scared. <laughs> ignorance, uh, ignorance was bliss. Yeah, it, was, it truly was like kind of like, um, and then Dave uh, and we knew Dave. We we're like, well, let's have Dave, let, you know, let, let's let's bring a lot of people who know nothing <laughs> So, I mean, on paper, this sounds fantastic as an investment. So we were talking of, it's, I mean, it really does. Black and yeah. white movie about clerks, no star power, cost about 27,000, 27, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, first time DP, really. I mean, other than shorts, first time director, first time producer, um, yeah. first time cast, essentially. You had first no, yeah. first time. So again, on paper, solid, solid yeah. investment. <laughs> Everyone lined up. Everyone's just like, how much money do you need? Yeah. Um, They were like, wanted to give us a million. And we're like, no, 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 no. No, no. We only want (laughs) 27,000. Um, Let's not yeah, get crazy. And then, and, and also, I just re- recently found out that Dave, uh, Dave was the DP on the Mandalorian, so he's done okay for himself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dave, you know, shot. I mean, Dave went on to shoot, shoot like most of the seasons of Homeland, and now he's on Mandalorian. Like, you know, yeah, he's sort of, you know, his career in the last has just taken off, you know, and he's doing, you know, he's been nominated for Emmys, like, it's just amazing. But yeah, we were at that point, you know, that's why Kevin ended up paying for it. 
you know, essentially all those on his credit cards. But, you know, his 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 mindset, which always made sense to me, was like, you know, you can go to NYU and if you'd have gone to NYU or another sort of more prestigious film school, it's like you could have spent a hundred thousand, you know, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars. So it's like, you know, by the time he came out of Vancouver film school, having spent like, you know, eight to ten thousand dollars in fees and living and et cetera, et cetera, and then you add, you know, another thirty grand in credit card debt, it's like it didn't seem you know, it's like on paper once again, like on paper is like is this the worst thing like you you guess you're in debt and if the movie is a total disaster you'll have to dig yourself out of it but like why not just it? i mean but that's that and I, I will say this like that's that's you know that's not me that was kevin like kevin had that kevin's always had that drop you know and like to to make that sort of like leap you know he made the leap of like I'm just like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to do it, you know, and like start racking <laughs> like giving credit cards. And- you know, it, no, it's, and it's, I mean, look, I, you know, I grew up in the nineties uh, and, and that, and you, you guys were part of that first wave of true independent, like that, what, what we consider independent film today was created starting in 89 with sex lies and continue with clerks and, and, and El Mariachi and Reservoir and, and that whole, you know, Linkletter and Slacker and all these guys. Um, and, and when you guys were making clerks, it hadn't really hit yet. Sundance was Sundance, but it wasn't Sundance. Like you guys helped create the mythos around Sundance with, with clerks and Mariachi. And then of course, all these other films that came around that time. So there was, there wasn't even kind of a blueprint for what you guys were doing. Like it wasn't like, oh yeah, we're going to submit to Sundance, and then obviously Harvey and Miramax is going to pick this up, and we're going to get a fat check, and our careers are blo-. like that wasn't even a thing yet. So the risk that you guys were taking was not only f- crazy. Looking in hindsight, it's like on paper it looked horrible, but it was like really, it was really brave and stupid all at the same time. A hundred percent. But I will, I will sort of like. Unfortunately, punch a hole. <laughs> please punch, please punch away. Because uh, there was actually like an absolute blueprint, which was, was Slacker. You're right. I guess Slacker did. You're right. Slacker. Because so Slacker, but... Slacker comes out. Kevin sees Slacker. Like, here's the Slacker blueprint. Kevin goes to New York, sees Slacker, goes, it lo- loves it. And he's like, if that's a movie, I can make a movie, right? <laughs> and then from there, there was like, you know, there was enough examples. I guess you're right. We were really early though. Slacker being, we were super early and we definitely became like part of the sort of Sundance mythos of like the ultra low budget kind of like film from nowhere, you know, and then filmmaker plucked out and sort of, you know, given a, a career. Like we we're definitely all part of that. But there was enough, you know, right down to the fact that Kevin was like, there was an article about Slacker that he had framed on his wall, which was Rick had made the movie and then showed it as a in-progress screening at the IFFM, which was the International Feature Film Market. And and Amy Taubin did this sort of wrap-up article every year of, and picked a few movies, and she had picked Slacker. And so that really was the blueprint. Like it, Sundance was technically not the end zone. The end zone was to get to IFFM and screen it. So 
we have that blueprint. And then there was another article I remember written by Peter Broderick, which was a, a um, budget breakdown of laws of gravity, which had yeah. this very, very like by year, but it still was like, and so it kind of helped shape this idea of like, we think we can do this because I think Slacker was 22,000 and laws of gravity was around there too. So it was like, it kind of became this sort of like $25,000 idea. That was the budget, you know? And, and, and before, you know, the other person who was like very influential who had preceded everybody was Jarmusch. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, Stranger Than Paradise was a huge influence. I mean, like a big influence as far as like long takes, you know, like there was definitely an influence, but it was also just an influence of like, you know, being young and like the, the those those are the first independent films. That I, like I think Stranger Paradise was like the first indie film. I what was that? What year was that? What year was that? Is that eighty nine ninety? I thought it was eighty nine. I was about to look. Yeah, I think it's because I know. I mean, obviously, Soderbergh's you know Sex Lies was, but that was a million dollar. That was like a million dollar yeah. movie. That, was, that wasn't a small indie, but it was the thing that kind of launched Sundance into being what Sundance essentially became. Um, and prior to that, Hollywood Shuffle in 87, which was another big blueprint, which I think I think Robert Townsend doesn't get enough credit for for being like one of the first guys. I think he was one of the first guys to put everything on his credit card and just say, screw it. And he, yeah. yeah. And I like, I think Kevin, like Kevin, the blueprint, I, I'm pretty, I think, that was that's why Kevin put it all on his credit card. It's like it was like the like the blueprint was sort of like Hollywood Shuffle, Slacker, Laws of Gravity was just the first budget I'd ever seen where they'd broken it down into camera equipment and all that stuff. And I was just like such a neophyte that I was like, it just gave me something where I was like, oh, like so if somebody says a camera package costs three times as much, I can cry bullshit and go like, no, 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 like this, you know what I mean? It just gave me something to, to base it on. But we did have this sort of, we had this blueprint and we ultimately go to the IFFM. We have a terrible screening and no one's in the, like there's, there's us in the cast. And then there's like three or four other people, you know, but there was one guy, there's one guy, this guy, Robert Hawk, um, who was a consultant for Sundance and was a big part of the indie film world. And he had watched it and he becomes this sort of like, he leaves and he tells Peter Broderick and then Amy Taubman who wrote the article calls Peter Broderick and says like, is there anything I missed? And he's like, you got to watch this movie clerks. So then Kevin's in the store. We're all depressed. Cause we're like, well, that's it. Right, that's that's forty grand. Like the blueprint was over. The blueprint ran out. We're like we ran out. Done. Yeah, we turned the page and we're like, fuck, it's blank. There's nothing left to do except lick our wounds. And then Amy Talbot calls Kevin at the store, and basically we become we become the the sort of if if the slacker article she wrote is the prototype, we basically become that film for that year we became the film you know we became the slacker we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show of her article and then everything just sort of 
ballooned from there. You know, everything was just like, and it was all, look, it's all, so much of it was word of mouth because it was like from Peter Broderick, Amy Talbot, like it just became like Larry Kardish from MoMA and then John Pierce, like it just, you know, then the film just starts, like then people are moving, advancing things without us doing anything. And we're just sitting back, you know, like, uh, like watching like, um, you know, roller coasters like, uh, like this. You're just like, what the fuck's happening? And you're so long for the ride at that point. Yeah. As soon as it should, I mean, look, you know, as soon as we get to Sundance, you know, the, the only thing left is like, will someone buy it? You know, we still didn't know that. And, and there had been sort of screenings prior. So some of the studios had seen it and it was really like, well, we got to have a, we have to have really great screens to see it. So that was the only thing kind of left. And then once it's bought, then, it, then it's truly like the roller coaster of like, you know, but it was, it was really, um, you know, it was, it's something that <clears throat> the, the experience from beginning to end is, was so incredible. Like it, it was, it was like it was written, you know, like you, by the time you're like, by the time we're in Cannes in Critics Week and Kevin and I are like <laughs> trying to avoid going to the awards dinner because we didn't want to dress up or some stupid shit. And then we go and we win, you know, and we're just sort of like, there's this amazing photo of us who sort of like, I mean, I, I think it's more on my back, but Kevin's face is just that, like, what? That holy shit moment of, like, you know, because you constantly, you, you, you in a way, you, your, your mind sort of adjusts to what happens. So you go like, okay, we got it a can, and now it's over. Like, okay, we got the Sundance and now. You know, so you kind of go like, all right, like, this can't keep going. Yeah, like the the amazing train has okay. The amazing train stopped here. Okay, this is great. This is amazing. And then it's like it just kept going with that movie. Um, it just had such a life of its own, and it was such an amazing sort of. You know, we flew around the world. It was just, and we were. Tw- I was twenty two, I think. <laughs> so it was such. It was incredible. It was. It was like, you know, and for years it was like it has been. It it, it will always be it will always be the most, this incredibly special experience that nothing can really touch for reasons of like, um, for reasons that aren't the fault of any other film I've ever worked on. It's just, you know, you can't, you can't re-experience something for the first time. It's it's like, it's like your first love. Like you, you can't re-experience your first love. You might not end up with that person or whatever, but that moment and that time and your age and where you are in the world and your evolution and all that stuff, you'll never ever get your first kiss. Like that's that's something you'll never get your first. So Clerks was essentially your first time. <laughs> it, was, it was the first time and it was amazing. It was like we were in Cannes and I remember there was a Miramax boat and then next to it was this was a, a yacht and Simon LeBond was on it. And basically we were, you know, we were running around all the time, but basically we end up meeting Simon LeBond and he's like, said, you know, he kind of says like, Oh, I'd love to see a movie. And I was like, I was like, well, it's playing at like eight in the morning. 
or something crazy. And he's like, well, come get me. So I basically got up at 7.30, walked all the way to the, because we were staying at a hotel. I, I walk onto his boat and no one's awake. So I wake, I rouse Simon LeBon, who's like, and I take him to this and I walk him into a screening, you know? It was just and he's like, that's like, that's just, but that's like bizarro world kind of stuff. Like you can't even write that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It was just such an it was such an amazing experience. And there's been so many movies, uh, you know, there's lots of great experiences. But it was, you know, it was being that young, right? You know, and watching these doors open into a world. It's like you can't. I mean, that's the thing. You know, you only walk through the door once, and that was like such an amazing experience of right. walking through the door into this sort of world that you know we generally are. Um, you know, it's presented as, you know, behind a velvet rope, <laughs> so to speak. So it's like, you only kind of get to walk in there once. And that was, you know, that was clerks. Now, the one thing that I want everyone listening, and I think this is, this is a, this is an issue that I dealt with most of my filmmaking career. And I think a lot of filmmakers still do is they'll look at stories like clerks and slacker and mariachi and, and that kind of time period. And they will think they'll make films today thinking that that's an option. Meaning like what would happen to you? Like I always consider you guys like a lottery ticket. Like you guys won a lottery ticket. It was the right place, right time, right product. Um, and, and that goes along for all, like Slacker and Mariachi. Like if you guys show up today with clerks, do you think you can cut through the noise? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. What I, what I will say is like something always cuts through the noise, right? Like there's right? always something that cuts through the noise. And and part of it is, part of it is definitely luck and timing. You know, it's like part of it is luck and timing, um, because you know, as our career went on, like releases of movies is also about luck and timing too. You know, it's like you can sort of make a great movie and it gets released at a bad time with a bad marketing campaign, and it doesn't sort of like. <clears throat> I think could. You know, it's like it's a time right right now. Do I think that a film like Clerks, well, it's like rated our comedy and and all that's like so much of that has grown since we've sort of come on the scene. And there's so many actors in that in that world that I do think it would be harder to cut through because we what we were, well, and, and what Kevin was was like whether people think he's the voice of a generation or like, I'm not arguing that point, but he was a voice from that generation that was unique and specific. And that's the thing that, <clears throat> that's the thing that in addition to luck, you know, um, Oh, there's a combination. It's a formula. It's not just the one thing. It's a bunch yeah, of different things that hit to get I same time. Who are, you know, people who are out there going like, you can't, <laughs> If people who look at Clerks or Slacker, it's not like Kevin looked at Slacker and was like, I'm gonna make Slacker. He more was like, Oh, that's a movie that like that that's a that's a vision from Rick Linklater. Like, you know, then Kevin was like, but this is what I find funny and this is what I enjoy doing. And he poured himself into that and had a unique voice. And you know, I'll always say this, which is, you know, Kevin 
had been writing for years and years and years and years since he was really young. So by the time he's 22 and writes a script, it's like, it's just fucking better than, you know, everyone who's 18 is like, I'm gonna, now I'm gonna write scripts. And then, you know, it's just cause I read those, I wrote those. Like I wrote, you know, I'm trying to write a script, but holy shit, like this is, you know, cause I had Kevin who was just a much more developed narrative writer. He's just kind of new and, and you can see it on the page. So. I think there's a lot of, you know, luck, luck is so many things, but, you know, the pursuit of a unique voice, right? <laughs> the goal shouldn't be like, what do I have? You know, like, or it's like, let's just make a movie, like, let's make clerks in a, in a you know, a, like valets, let's make valets. And it's like, you can go ahead, but unless being a valet is this very personal thing where you can convey something to the audience that that is unique then you just become like a knockoff movie you know and i think like <clears throat> i think when people sit there and go like hey let's make something cheap it's like well make something cheap and personal and those that combination will that that combination at least has the chance to cut mm-hmm. through the right because you're doing something that's like you have to and some people's personal what's personal to them and what means something to them can be a thirty thousand dollar movie or some people it's like a 40 like you know sometimes the scale of that can be some people like sci-fi like it doesn't really matter but like i do think finding your voice is and I'll, i'll bring it back to me which is like that experience of finding your voice was a much longer process for me. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And then like I, you know, Kevin walked in the door at like 22 and like he had been developing his voice for years though. Like he had been writing school plays and stuff like that, but finding your voice, um, for me is the most important thing that you can do. Like that's the thing that people, like finding your voice, finding that thing that's unique to you. Um, if you can look at something in a way that no one else is necessarily expressing, there's other people who see it the same way. And if you can capture that, that's how you gain an audience, right? Like we all look at things in different ways, but there's also just like, I think what clerks did, and this is like, not anything I thought about when I was 21. <laughs> but what I thought, what I think it did was it created this sort of, you know, it was an expression of something that didn't exist. And there was this huge audience that was like, it does exist. This is how I talk to my, like, like, this is what we think is funny. This is when we bullshit with our friends. Like, and that, that, that's the part where it's like, there's all kinds of luck that has to come into it. There's all kinds of timing. And we as filmmakers, like, I believe what you have to focus on first and foremost is like, what's the unique, what do you, what's, what's the unique sort of perspective that you're bringing to what you're doing? That's a, that's a great, great, great piece of advice. You're absolutely right. If you can connect with something that's authentic to you in your own voice, if you try to go make another clerks, you're going to fail because there's, there's already a clerks and it was done authentically by Kevin and you. Um, and yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Now, after Clerks, obviously, you guys are the toast of the town. You know, you're the bell of the ball. You're you're being wooed. It's the it's the early 90s. Money is flying everywhere. And yeah. they say, what do you want to do next? And I and, and Kevin and you say, hey, let's do mall rats. And uh, and you're like, here's here's that those million dollars that you were talking about earlier. Now we'll accept your money. So you make mall rats, uh, which, by the way, I'm I'm actually a very big fan of mall rats. I actually saw it in the theater test screening in the theater when I was in college. Oh, wow. And I got I, I got that little book that the the, the 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 movie official movie book that yeah, yeah. I, I, they gave one to you as you walked out and stuff. I oh yeah, I, I saw I was my, me and my friend were pissing ourselves when we saw it because it was speaking to us at that time in our lives. Yeah. Um, so mall rats um, didn't live up to the financial expectations it of the bombed. studio. It, <laughs> I didn't I didn't want to no. say it out loud. It no, bombed. No, no. It, it totally bombed. I mean, look, the wounds of mall rats have been healed, you know, a long time oh. ago, knowing that like the audience ultimately found that movie and, mm-hmm. and you know it didn't didn't it wasn't 1990 you know when it came out it was like it was pretty dark we were both like fuck because you put all that work into it but and you, you know, and you were also and you guys were pretty much so you guys were put in because you you, you had one hit which was clerks which was kind of like all right this is an anomaly let's see if these guys have anything else so they give you a little bit of money and then mall rats happens and it bombs so that pretty much blacklists you in town, from my understanding, like it, it kind of just you're in director jail and producer jail at this point. It's the you know it's the sophomore slump that got the reviews were terrible. You know, a lot of it sort of like pointed right at Kevin, I think, which was just like, you know, we built you up, we we you know we really set you out, and then you make this, and you know, I think in hindsight, I would be curious if any if any critics would have the you know, to go back and relook at that movie and, and understand its connection to clerks, you know, like understand that it's not this sort of, and I think for you as an audience member, like you understood it, right? Like it felt like, like a, a proper extension of, of what that movie was. And, but we were, you know, at that point, Kevin has, at that point before it was over, Kevin had started writing a version of Chasing Amy that was a little bit more commercial. And as soon as it happens, it's like, I guess we were in movie jail, but in a way we didn't even, we lived in Jersey. So it was like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like we're in Jersey. It's like when you're not in Hollywood, it's like, you're not, it's like, you don't really feel, you didn't feel the heat, if you will. Yeah. You didn't feel anything. We were just kind of like more bummed out and like, Oh shit, what do we do now? And Kevin was like, you know, like, let's just go make another movie, you know, and let's do it quickly. And so Chasing Amy became a, a, a reaction to all that money, you know, that we were given and, and the fact that it didn't do well. We we're like, well, let's create something that we know we can get enough money. Um, and let's do it cheap and, and also do it our way. You know, we kind of went back to let's do it for enough money that we could be left alone. And then really be specific about what we're doing and, and not worry about, you know, casting, like we can cast who we want. So let's do it for, you know, shot the whole thing, you know, like a hundred grand, like a hundred grand or something like that. Right. It was like to shoot it and start cutting, you know, to deliver like a, 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 a sort of a couple cuts of the movie and, and get it far along. It was like a couple hundred grand. Um, so there, there's a post cost and all the rest of it, but we did it, you know, we kind of went in at a price point that was like, we knew 
that it wasn't a huge investment for somebody. We could make our money back. You know, we were using like a great crew, you know, young people. And cause we were young too. I mean, we're, I think I was 26 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, young crew from New York, you know, was coming down, we were shooting all in Jersey. And then, you know, we were back to sort of a version of, of making clerks again, just with a, you know, we took the experiences from clerks, we took the experience from mall rats and sort of chasing Amy becomes the, the rebuilding year, you know, it becomes like, let's, let's, let's sort of like, we had, we had other producers on mall rats who we got along with, but it was like, this is like, all right, let's just do this our way. Like, yes, we need a bigger crew. Yes, we need this. Yes, we need that. But like, how do we do that through through our filter and, and through the way we want to do things? And then from there, it's like, after Chasey Navy, that's where we carry on through Dogma and everything else. But it was a really like, it was a refocus. That whole movie was just sort of like a shift back to like, all right, this is what we're doing. And, and, and the smart thing that you guys did is that you moved so quickly because Mall Rats was, you know, you guys, there was a lot of eyeballs on you in town. And they're like, oh, these guys, obviously, they're, they're, they're a one hit wonder, you know, yeah. uh, they're, that's it. They're bubble gum. Let's, it's, it's move on. But you guys, like, no, no, let's, let's get in there. And arguably, Chasing Amy is one of my favorite of the filmography of what you and Kevin have done. There's so much heart, so much. Uh, authenticity in that film it's not nearly as silly as mall rats in in the crudeness of it but there still is those elements but there's yeah. so much more heart in in chasing amy like there's it's deeper in in a way am i am i am i wrong on that no no i mean i think i think chasing amy becomes the sort of um i think a lot of people react to it because it becomes the sort of the movie that sort of represents kind of more the totality of who Kevin is, right? So it's like the crude humor, of course, is part of it. But it's like, you know, he's also a drama, you know, he's a dramatist. He's a, you know, he's, he's also somebody who's like, has a big heart. And, you know, it's also a personal movie, you know, it's a, a, it's a personal movie for him. And I think that that sort of shifts, uh, you know, sort of, Clarks and Marats, and this becomes something where he's like, all right, I'm going to tell another personal story, which, you know, just happens to be more grounded in, you know, there's a lot more drama and real drama, right? So it's like sort of drama coming from, stemming from this specific situation. But I think it became like, and that was a year later. So Marats comes out in 95, 96, like February or something. We start shooting Chasing Amy, February or March, and then, January 97, we're in Sundance, you know, and we were, we're back, you know, we're, and we're back, baby. And we're, yeah. and we're back. And then, and that does gangbusters at the box office, especially for its budget and launches this little known actor, really Ben Affleck, uh, which is his first starring role and, yeah. and that, that whole thing. So, um, it was just an exciting time because I was, I was following you guys. Like I was following you and Robert and Quentin and all that, you know, that crew and, and Richard and all those, that crew, I would watch every damn thing you guys put out. And it was that weird time. And, and, and I always tell people this, like the nineties, it felt like every month there was a new Cinderella story. It's either John Singleton, it's, it's Ed Burns, it's, it's Kevin Smith. It was like, a, it's just, it was an amazing time to be an independent filmmaker. It was kind of like when, um, when Spielberg and Lucas and Milius and, and uh, Coppola and De Palma, 
that that film school brats generation when they were yeah. kind of given the keys to Hollywood because Hollywood had no idea what the hell to do. So they're like, here, go make Taxi Driver. <laughs> go make- we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And you guys kind of had that run in the 90s. It was that from like 89 to like 98, 99, there was that run that was just so many amazing filmmakers came out during that time. I mean, I think there's, you know, I'm sure someone's read a, a book about it, but I feel like, you know, part of it is like the industry sort of needs to open, you know, it's sort of like, especially then it's like, Nowadays, it feels like there's a lot of venues and ways to get things made. And and back then, it was like, it was just harder to get things made because there weren't as many outlets. Um, But you also see the surge of, you know, Fox Searchlight. So there's more sort of like, there's more outlets for these movies. There's more opportunities. But also, it felt like the, you know, like in the 70s, the business was kind of like, how do we fucking... How make, to, you know, make money <laughs> yeah like what do audiences want like you know I, there's also a generational thing to me which is like the industry has to open its doors every once in a while to let in the new generation of voices that they don't necessarily understand you know like what was happening in the 70s it's like it's not like those guys who were making movies in the 50s and 60s necessarily understood like that the audience wanted to see Easy Rider, right? Like, right. Easy Rider kind of opened the door for all those guys. So like, they said, wait a minute, this 200 and something thousand dollar movie went on and made like, you know, $10 million or whatever it made. They were just like, we don't know what the hell's going on. Let's give it to these guys. This Scorsese and the Spielberg kid, let's give them that shark movie. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it just became, a, it, it's like audiences change. You know, I think it's always like some combination of, you know, audiences are changing and, and, you know, younger people come up and I, it's happening now. Like, like there's, you know, I'm almost 50. So it's not like I'm the young buck anymore. And there's a whole generation of people coming up that have been influenced by totally different people. And, you know, they all had the internet <laughs> since they were born. Like, all of these influences change what people people's taste. So it's like, I, you know, and I think in the nineties, there was a sense of like, um, coming out of the eighties, it was like this need of like fresh voices and, you know, something that was more reflective of, of that, of the generation coming up. The Gen X, the Gen X guys, you know, uh, it, yeah. we're, we're, we're Gen X guys where the, where yeah. that generation was like, I just, yeah, it was the nineties were fun, man. The nineties were yeah. fun. I mean, I miss, I miss them more now than ever before <laughs> when you could just go to a movie theater. That was nice. Yeah. Well, that was last, that was like last year. Yeah, I know, right? You didn't have to go all the way back to the nineties, but yeah, the nineties were, we had a lot, you know, I had a lot of fun in the nineties. It's funny. No one ever talks about the two thousands. You know, like you never hear like, oh, the 2000s music. I'm like, no, you know, I and, and I know those songs and I know that and I know those films, but it, yeah. the 80s and 90s get in the 70s, 80s and 90s kind of get that. They have their own thing. But the 2000s is tough. And like the 2010s was another. <laughs> but is it just that it's too young? I don't know. Oh, no, don't worry. It'll come back around. Like right now we're in our 90s nostalgia. And I think now people are starting to kick into the early 2000s. It's like a two decade 
run because eight, remember when the 80s was like all the rage, like everything was 80s, 80s, 80s. And 80s yeah. is still 80s is still cool to a certain extent. But I remember when it was 70s, like in the 90s, the 70s were kind of like a thing. And it, there's like a two or three decade delay. <laughs> well, I think we're old enough where it's like at a certain point, like we're not nostalgic. I like part of it is because like we have we you and I will probably never have nostalgia for the 2000s, right? Because we were just too old. Right. Like, like once you hit 30 or whatever, it feels like you sort of cease being, you know, it's like you stop like living in this or you stop reflecting back in nostalgic terms. Like right. the 80s, I was going like I graduated from high school in 89. So the 80s was like when, you know, the movies and music, you're 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 sort of. What I think is like the 80s for me, the 80s and 90s was an explosion of in, like I'm ingesting massive amounts of, of art in the form of movies, music, photography, like everything. Like the 80s and 90s, like I would fucking watch like four movies. Like when I was in, I would watch four movies a day. Yep. Like I, like it's this massive period where you're taking things in partly because, you know, you're not great or you have an outlet to, to like put things out. So you're sort of like, you're amassing all this stuff. And so I think that's why it has such a strong influence mm-hmm. on who we are. Like I think back to the eighties and nineties and yeah, like I, like everything I do today, it's like, it feels a little bit referential to that time. But part of it is because like, that is when the synapses were really forming around like, and these sort of large touchstones like land in your head during that period. And then by the time we get to 2000, like I don't have all these sort of cultural touchstones of like, you know, I was, of course I was listening to music and watching movies. I was doing all that stuff. And there's great movies from that period and great music and all that stuff. But it's still like, it doesn't have the same sheen to it because it wasn't during that sort of explosive period of like, you know, getting your driver's license and kissing like everything's new (laughs) you're absolutely you're absolutely right you're absolutely right now there's a couple of there's a few films that you produced that i had i mean i'd heard of a couple of them but i didn't when i started doing research i actually went into it and there was a a group of four features that you produce vulgar uh drawing flies a better place and the big helium dog um i i you know i've seen some of big helium dog which was shot on like VHS? I'd like out of beta? Like what was that shot? <laughs> I think they were all shot on 16 millimeter. Really? Yeah. They were all shot? Because it, I guess the copy that I saw was so bad yeah. that yes. it looked like you shot it on video. I'm like, why did they shoot this on video? This makes no sense. But yeah. the other ones were shot on 16. So, uh, you know, some of the people in that, like you had the Broken Lizard guys, you had uh, Q from Impractical Jokers and Baba Booey, Brian Lynch, um, all this, these amazing people. Tell us, can you tell me just a little bit about those four movies? And because they were kind of in a small, they were in a short period of time that yeah, they were all made. It was after, I think it was after Chasing Amy, and we had sort of signed a deal with Miramax, like an overall deal. And part of what we threw in was like, hey, we want to make these micro budget movies. It, it sort of in a way to sort of like our career was sort of the movies were getting bigger, you know, the budgets were getting bigger and we were like, well, Hey, let's sort of with some of the people we know that, that have scripts that, that, that 
the writing and stuff like let's go make some of these micro budget things in the 20 25 range basically clerk budget i feel like we got a hundred grand to make four movies and we sort of and then the the relationships was um you know brian lynch um had worked on chasing amy um Vincent Pereira had been around since Clerks, who directed A Better Place. And then vulgar Brian Johnson was Kevin's friend for a long time. Um, so all these movies just became an extension of that moment. We were like, oh, well, let's go sort of make some of these movies. And, you know, and and it did. It happened within like a two or I think it was like two or three year period, you know, and, and the and Brian was the one who knew the Broken Lizard guys and, or, you know, he kind of had connections to them and Brian Quinn had just worked at the office. So mm-hmm. like he had worked even more. <laughs> I just, I was talking to him the other day, like I've we've known each other for like 25 years. He had sort of come in to work at the office. Like he was in charge of like back in 19, um, you know, 99 if you got a t-shirt sent in the mail it was brian quinn who did it you know like that's where he was and he so was, he was working at he was working at vsq yeah he was working at vsq at that time and so all the people we kind of knew and it was like you know we loved independent film and so we were like let's go make some of these movies and they're all very different you know and vulgar got into toronto and they all had various degrees of success and um and then and then i think it was like my memory of like, why didn't we keep doing it was, it was a lot of, <laughs> it was a lot of like, there's almost too much work. Um, like, I mean, uh, making, a, making a movie is not, it's not yeah, easy. I mean, look, we weren't, it's not like we were on set all the time. And, and I think it was just a matter of like, we made Dogma. So we're heading into Dogma and then the clerk's cartoons happening. And it's just like the, the amount of work we're doing is expanding. And then suddenly like to maintain those or to keep them going just right. felt too much work, but it was really fun, you know? And now is, is it true that there is just no copies of Big Helium Dog anywhere? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I mean, Brian Lynch has one. But no, but I, I just saw an interview say, but he doesn't have one. <laughs> he said he didn't uh, have it. <laughs> I'll ask him, but as far as I know, he, he I, has I, a copy I, of it, but it's not been released, okay. but it's not available anymore. It's anyway. never been released, and I can't remember why. There was some clearance issue, um, but it was never released. Now the rest it's of them were. It has a hell of yeah. a cast. It has a hell of a cast. <laughs> now I don't know what happened to it. It was like it was off and on through the years. It was like music clearances, or there was something that was sort of. Um, hanging over its head and it just it just never sort of I thought it, he he must have a copy somewhere. I have to believe I mean he's a director yeah. he's got to have at least a yeah. VHS copy of it or now it's like fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark to find the thing <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah I don't know it might be I'm sure like or VSQ or somewhere there's got to be a copy I do not have a copy so one day it will get one day it will get uh, <laughs> leaked on, on, on online just yeah. like uh, Deadpool yeah. did accidentally uh <laughs> Now you you uh, you also got involved with another little known film as a producer uh, called Goodwill Hunting, and that was um, uh, you know one of my favorite films of that of that time period. And how did you get involved with that? And and how did you like kind of was it Ben that brought you in on that? So we were um, on Mallrats. We met Ben, um, and at that time, 
we were aware of who he was because like the whole um, saga of of Goodwill Hunting was in the trades where they had sold like Ben and Matt had sold the script to Castle Rock um, for a bunch of money. So it's like you know other young guys like sell script for a lot of money, and so it was on our radar. And then through Mallrats, we became friends. And my memory is that, like, during that period, we met Matt during a, like, a, a sort of internal screening on Mallrats. But basically what we found out is that, that Castle Rock was going to put it into turnaround because the guys were attached, but they wanted to attach a director that the guys weren't excited about. So basically there was, like, a... And so there was like a, a big turnaround cost and they sent us the script and we really loved it. And we had just signed our overall deal at Miramax. And so we sent it to our executive, John Gordon, and we we're like, this is fucking great. You guys should make this. Like we, you know, like you should meet with the guys. There's a turnaround cost, but you guys should act fast and dive all over it. And so it happened really quickly. And that's, you know, our job, we really were just like, we had just signed a deal. So we became a sort of conduit to get it there, mm -hmm. hype it up and get everybody excited. And then it happened really quickly. So by the time, by the time Chasing Amy happens, all of that was done. Like basically the movie was at, uh, the movie was at, was at Miramax and they were writing, doing rewrites. And they were also like, like, I remember like meeting with directors, you know, there was like four, like they wanted Gus to do it because um, they had met Gus and Gus wanted to do it. But then it was like Michael Mann and a couple other directors. That would have, that would have been an inch. Michael Mann's Goodwill Hunting would have been a very interesting. There might've been a couple more guns, just a couple. There would have been like all, there just been all guns. <laughs> But um, yeah, there would have been a shootout with Will Hunting, yeah. which is that love that great sequel, <laughs> Good Will Hunting Two Hunting Season yeah, from, yeah. from Jade Silent Bob Strikes Back. What a great Michael version in a totally different way. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was, and then we, you know, sort of, and then once it's in the hands of Gus Van Sant, it's like we're sort of just, you know, then you just get to be a fly on the wall. So we were up there a couple times. We were shooting in Toronto and. Um, it was just, you know, it was really interesting. I mean, for me, it was really interesting to watch because you're working so much, you're not on this, you know, you don't go on the sets of other filmmakers. And it's sort of interesting to watch how people act in different ways. Like he's very quiet and sort of, you know, he's not sort of sitting at the monitor shouting, like he sort of directs in this more sort of quiet way. Um, yeah, I mean, that film was like, I remember seeing the, we went into New York to see like the, the director's cut or whatever. And it was like, I mean, like it was basically 90, 95% of what the movie ended up being. Like it was just so like, he just knew what he wanted it to be. And it was so specific and like, it was just incredible. Like I remember just being, you know, you had chills. You're just like, wow. Like so, so good. Man. That movie's just yeah, so, 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 yeah. so, so, so good. Yeah. Um, now during this time, uh, I think you were heading into dogma. Did you, did you guys know? that this was going to be as controversial as it essentially became? Um, we knew in the sense that, you know, at that point, Miramax was owned by Disney and Disney was like, you know, we're not going to let you make this movie. So it's like, it wasn't like we kind of entered into it. The, the writing was on the wall a little bit from the very beginning that like there was a real like problem. Uh, 
that there was a problem. And then um, it sort of, it, you know, it kind of grew from there and then kind of like, you know, peaked at a certain point and didn't kind of get worse or, or didn't get better or worse. It just sort of, you know, there was pickets at the New York Film Festival and, and pickets when the movie, you know, picketing or, or um, when the when the movie came out. But um, yeah, I actually remember seeing Kevin going out to pick it with them. He's like, who's this bastard who made this movie? It was brilliant yeah. to watch. Yeah. yeah, he went out and he protested. <laughs> he protested his own film. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, but but yeah, it was uh, it was. Um, we we kind of knew enough to you know we had a fake name for the movie while we were making it and you know nothing really came of it but there was there was definitely like a tension about it before um, early on and it was I mean look was it a surprise to us like we were like what's the big deal yeah but enough people at that point were like you got to take it more seriously and so but you're, pl- you know, you're playing with fire you're playing with fire yeah, guys just yeah. be just, just be aware of what's going on don't be completely ignorant of what's yeah, happening i mean part of me is just like it never really got that bad and i couldn't imagine if you know today oh my like, god can you imagine like, if dog today, showed up today like i think that just you know partly with social media and all the rest of it it would just be i mean that's part of the thing too where it's like even a protest has to like be ignited, right? It needs fuel. And I think like it was still 1998 and it's like, there just wasn't the, you know, it was still just like people, like 10 people in front of a movie theater and everyone's just driving home going like, oh, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Could, yeah. Imagine Facebook around that time or Twitter or something like that would have exploded. It would, it would certainly, there fewer people. I mean, the key is like a few people can make a lot of noise now and you know, and I think back then it was way harder to do. So it's just sort of the momentum of what happened around the release. It just kind of was like, it just, it was kind of gone very quickly. Now, another film that you produced, uh, Jersey Curl, was unlike anything I'd ever seen in the sense of the attention that you guys were getting like while the movie was being made because of Ben and Ben and Jennifer's relationship or Benifer as they like to call it. I mean, the pressure of you guys as the filmmakers must've been like, dude, I just want to make a movie. And it all of a sudden turns into this thing that it's not even about, like it's about Jennifer. We got to cut Jennifer out of it now because she had this thing with Julie, with Julie or the other thing that they, so like yeah. you got, you got caught up in this kind of tsunami <clears throat> that was not even your fault or even initiated by you. You guys got just caught up in the, the banner for tsunami. How do you deal with that being like in the center of a hurricane like that when you, Kevin, were dealing with that? Um, you know, you, I mean, ultimately like with everything in life, it's like you get to a point where you're just like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's like, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. it right. Like the, the, you know, at the time when we started the movie, it's like, their relationship just started. So on one level, there's, you're like, well, this could be great for the movie, right? Like there's no, you, you don't know either way. And then when it, and then by the time we get to the test screen, it's just obviously not going to be beneficial to the movie because people had such a strong opinion of the two of them that it, you know, transferred onto the movie itself. And then, it was kind of after the first test screening where we're like, well, there's nothing we can do. 
you know, it's like there's really nothing we can do. It's like the audience is is not going to be enamored with this, and and so like it did become about trying to. And look, you don't want to be in that situation. You know, you don't want to be sort of fueled by or be making creative decisions based on just sort of like a negative response that your audience has to the actual individuals and not the characters. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But you also, you know, there's nothing you can do. It's like once you're sitting in it, and it was, it was enough. It wasn't like there was two people. It wasn't like there was like a couple that like, were like, we fucking hate those guys. It was like, like it was palpable. You're like, all right, <laughs> like we can keep testing this thing. And it wasn't like, no, there was going to be a whole other audience. It was like, we love them. And we hate them. It wasn't even like, it was just like, generally people were like, we don't want to necessarily watch this. And so, you know, you try to pivot off of that and, and try to maintain, you know, the story you want to tell as best as possible. But, but, you know, ultimately it's going on in the theater. Ultimately an audience is going to, and if it's, if it's keeping the audience, unfortunately it's like, you know, it's not what the movie's about. So you're like, right. if it's keeping the audience from sort of interacting with or, or sort of being receptive to, you know, what the heart of the movie is, then, you know, you have to make that decision of like start to trim that part of the movie down and, and get into the sort of the rest of it. And so it was it was definitely frustrating. But, you know, I, I tend to believe like the energy you spend battling things you just have no control over is just, you know, a lot of wasted energy. And that, that, it, well, that that is a, that, that is that is words of an almost 50 year old man saying that. And I completely understand what you're saying. Cause things I, there's just stuff when you, you just can't get until you hit a certain age <laughs> or experiences well, in your life. Well, it's like, there's that great saying of like worrying is paying debt on money. You don't owe. That's a great line. Great line. Yeah. And, and that's, sort of, you know, it's like, and, and you can apply that to like worrying about things that you have absolutely no control over is paying debt on money you don't owe. Like you're sort of, you're just grinding in this sort of thing. And look, we were younger back then. So I can probably impart these ideas because like <laughs> you go through enough experiences where you're like, oh wow, like, there, there really was nothing we could do. Like that that component of the movie was this exterior issue right. that existed outside of us. We couldn't reach into it. And like, we couldn't recut their public persona. Right, like, it, that, that was that. that was the thing about it is because a lot of times when there's controversy in the film, like dogma was generated by you guys, like that's just the nature of the story. And there yeah. was a there was a you know controversy and all of that stuff. And even um, Zach and and Mary make a porno that had some controversy too because it had the word porno in it, like it freaked people out. Uh, yeah. And they, but again, generated by you guys. But this was out of your control like it was completely exterior and i think also people were just so exhausted of seeing those two on together we're just like we don't want to see a movie with these two now like it was just so much and you guys just got caught up in that wake yeah i mean look there's there's for every look hollywood you know couples in hollywood getting together making movies has gone has has been an incredible publicity benefit and it's been a bad one and it's like it it's not like 
it's not like we came to that moment. If, if we'd all come to that moment and they were like, every time two stars are in a movie together like this, it's a disaster. Then obviously there would have been enough people in the room going like, don't do it. <laughs> but it wasn't that. It was like, there's cases in both sides. It's like, it could either be a boon or it could be bad. It's like, it could be Mr. Don't. It could be Mr. or Mrs. Smith, you know, with yeah, Brit- exactly. which was, it's exactly the same kind of Brangelina and that whole thing and it was but it fed it it fed that movie and this one it just sucked and 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 hurt the movie it was well, just really weird to a place and by the time the movie comes out it's like there hasn't been a sort of turn but basically from the time we started moving on it's like you know you know the, the public is is fickle and they'll <laughs> change their mind and so they change their mind and like and you sort of sit in the test screen and go like all right you know, like, what are we going to, like, there's nothing we can do. We can be mad at, like, it was hard. You couldn't really focus your ire on anybody either. I mean, you could try, but once again, it was like, it was just that situation. Is Don Quixote essentially hitting the windmill at that point? You're like, there's nothing you can do. You there's nothing gotta... we can do. You, like I said, we couldn't, if, if we had the ability to get to go in and reshape the public persona to make it all good again, we could have done that and kept the movie the way it is, but that's, we had no, we couldn't do that. The only thing we could control is, is the content in the movie sort of, um, you know, trim back their sort of relationship at the beginning of the movie. And but, it was, get to the, but it ages well. Like you watch that movie now, it's aged yeah. very, very well because you're so far removed from that ridiculousness that now the movie can live on its own. So it's, I was just, just always curious about that. And the movie is ultimately about him and his daughter. You know, it's about right. him and his daughter. That's what the movie is about. And 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 so you know, it ultimately, like you said, it sort of. I don't necessarily. I think there's probably a, a. I don't think even trimming back some of the beginning stuff was the end of the world. I think there's probably like a, a another version of the movie that's more of like a you know maybe a slightly extended opening, maybe putting some of the stuff back in there. But I think overall, it's like. You know, it it, um, it didn't it didn't it didn't sort of break the movie. Let's put it that way. Exactly, exactly. Now, you know, we've been talking all about you producing and and making you know Vioskew kind of films and all that kind of stuff, but then out of left field, <laughs> almost, uh, I start seeing that you're writing Freebirds and getting involved with that, and then directing The Grinch, co-directing The Grinch, and how the hell did you get into animation? And like, how did that work around town when you walked in? Like, <laughs> I think you were saying like, aren't you the clerks guy? Like, why are you in animation yeah. now? <laughs> yeah. I, um, you know, I'd, I'd always want to, I remember I, I was going to go to art school or film school. So, so the sort of, I was all, I always was doodling and drawing and, and I, I was really like, before I, I was really debating whether to go to art school or film school right at the moment that I ended up making a decision to go to Vancouver film school and meet Kevin. Like it's that fast. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I'll, I'll, I, I was living near UCLA. Um, I, I could, my grades weren't good enough to go there, but I was living in these sort of like shitty apartments there. And I used to run around the campus. Like I would do two or three runs around the entire campus. And then sometimes I'd cut through the middle and there were these big stairs where they shot gotcha. Like mm-hmm. there were these big stairs right in the middle of the thing. And I would run up the stairs 
And I was running and I was like, what am I going to do? And I run up the stairs and it was nighttime. I'd run at night after I was working and I get to the top of the stairs and it was really bright light in my face. And so I kind of like slow down and adjust and they were shooting a movie. And I was like, I was like, I was it. Like, I was like, wow. you know, I was, my, my decision was sort of made in that moment. And then basically I very quickly applied to the Vancouver film school and four or five, five months later from that moment, I'm up in Vancouver and I meet Kevin, like after that sort of moment. But, but the art part, you know, the art thing was always in my head. So in other words, if a, if an animation cell would have fell out of a window and hit you in the head, we, you might have never gone on that yeah, on that ride. There's a life drawing class up there. I'd have been like, oh my god, like I just what I should this do. This is a sign. It's a yeah. sign. <laughs> and so I go to film, but I'd always been interested in it, and I, you know, I've always loved animation. And but the big moment was I remember Kevin and I, uh, because Jason Lee got to see The Incredibles before it came out, and yeah. it was like, and it was uh, a special screening, and you know. I I loved animation and, you know, I thought that Toy Story and I'd already sort of like, I was really interested in this sort of new technology applied to this sort of classical um, 2Ds. And so I saw that screening though, and that was the thing where I was like, oh, I want to do, like, I'd really love to do this because it felt like, oh, this is a movie. Like, it really felt like a movie. It was like, it's an animated movie, but the can you know, the camera work, the performances, like it just felt like, oh, you you could just make a movie, like you could do what crane shot, like you could do whatever you wanted, like you had all the filmmaking tools inside of this box, you know, and and from there, and I remember telling Kevin, like I think I left there, and I was like, I want to do that, like I want to want to get under the hood of that and sort of do it, and and so coming off of Zach and Mary, it was kind of the moment where I was like. I was like, if I'm gonna do it, I gotta like I gotta, you know, I just gotta do it. Like I gotta sort of stop. I could do this forever. This is comfortable. And you know, but for me, I'm I was like, I just have to stop. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And sort of, you know rebuild myself, like re- refocus myself specifically on animation and, 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 and writing too. And like, I sort of, I stopped after Zach and Miriam was just kind of like focusing on writing and trying to get into animation. And that's when, um, this guy, Aaron Warner, I knew, and then it just, and, and then it becomes like, you're in the business long enough and you know enough people. And if you sort of, right. if you, if you're, if you're fun to work, if you're good to work with, if you work hard, like, you know, all that stuff can pay off. I, I, I'll say that, which is Freebirds becomes this guy, Aaron Warner, who produced all the Shreks, was like, I have this movie, Freebirds, it was called Turkeys at the time. And he was like, you know, if you want to, if you want to learn animation, like, this thing's like a fast moving train. And if you're willing to sort of like jump onto it, um, you'll learn very quickly. And so I was like, as the producer, and I was like, yeah, I was like, this is my shot, you know? Because at that point, it's like now, now it's like animated animation, making animated films is a much broader sort of, um, there's more opportunities. But at that point, it was like, you know, 
this is at the ten, this is the beginning of everything opening up. And that, you know, that was more like Pixar and Blue Like there was these established studios. And if you had an idea, you had to go to those specific places and that was it. Um, so then I jumped on Freebirds and just through the process of making it, you know, it's a, it's a very open collaborative sort of medium. It's a little, you know, it's a little bit different from making live action because it's just the pace of it's different. It's just a much more open forum. You know, you're sort of making it, a, you, every, you're getting together with a bunch of artists coming up with ideas. And, and so I started writing pages and those are getting, you know, brought in. And, and so then I come off of that, I come off of Freebirds and I don't want to do animation. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I want to do animation. And so, because I was tired, it was a, it was a tough, it was just tough. Yeah, because you produced and wrote as well. Yeah, it was a tough schedule. And um, so I came off, I was like, I'm not sure. I was like, I loved a lot of it and the people I worked with, but I was like, I'm not sure if I want to do it. And then, and then I was just working as an editor, you know, which I've done through the years. And I, um, I cut a documentary on Marvel that was on ABC called From Pulp to Pop. Mm-hmm. It was like, so I did that and, and then I was cutting, uh, I'd taken over or I was finished. I was just doing a polish, a little polish. I wasn't the main editor. I was just there for the end of a movie called, it ultimately became called No Escape, but it was called The Coup with Owen Wilson and Pierce Brosnan. It's by the Dowdle Brothers, Brothers, Mm -hmm. who just did the Waco series. And like, I had known them and, um, my friend was the editor and I was like, Oh, I'll get on that. And we were, and then that's when I got emailed by, from, uh, Chris Melendondri emailed me and I didn't know him. And I was like, well, I don't understand why I'm getting an email from him. But once again, so Brian Lynch, um, who was the craft service guy on chasing Amy and done all these <laughs> other things. You know, he wrote Minions, and um, but he had wrote Hop, so he'd been working in Illumination for a while, and he had given me, uh, or he had given Chris my information, and Chris was like, "Hey," because Illumination at that point was like they were making more movies, and so it was like as opposed to one every two or three years, they were trying to do, you know, two a year, like they were just. And he was feeling like maybe I'll bring in for the first time, like a producer, like an independent producer to help me sort of manage projects. And once again, I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure if I want to do animation. And the Dowdle brothers are just like the edit room that we're in was like a block and a half from Chris's office. And they were like, they were like, dude, like what the fuck? Like (laughs) go walk down the block. And, I was like, all right. So I went and then Chris and I hit it off really well. And um, we met three or four times. And then before we met a couple times before the Grinch came up and then he showed me some artwork. It had been going on at that point for six, seven months or whatever. And, um, and so we went back and forth and then finally I was like, yeah, yeah. Like I was, I kind of, I really got along with him well. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So then, that, that, so then that happens. It's so funny because when you talk, as you're talking, a lot of, a lot of filmmakers listening, a lot of times they think, oh, well, it's about, it's about the agent or it's about the manager or about, you know, this or that. And it's just, it's about relationships. I mean, seriously, the craft 
service guy who if you would have been a dick to yes would have never recommended you for that job um because you never know where anyone's going to be and I've, I've had that happen to me in my career where they were my interns and then they all go off and are directing movies and and and, and have you know all these this amazing career it's so remarkable that just the craft service guy what is it 15 years later 20 years later <laughs> something like, like 20 four or five years later and i had kept in touch with brian like sure uh, sure like you know we'd read he'd send me scripts and i'd read them and we would kept in touch and but yeah that was you know that it's was about relationships the, yeah that was the seed of it of like that someone like chris was like knew brian and was like trust his opinion and then he's like who do you know that might be good about and i had come off of freebird so i ultimately had some experience at that so it's like I had some experience. And so, and I was even honest with Chris. I was like, I was like, I honestly don't know if I want to do animation. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like, the worst job interview ever. <laughs> oh, I was really like, I don't know if I want to get into this, but like I said, I really kind of got on with him. And then, you know, when he finally brought up the Grinch, I was, and I, look, when he brought up the Grinch, I was torn too, because, you know, I love the Chuck Jones version. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with that and so I was like oh man like I don't know if I want to be the guy that fucked this <laughs> I don't want to be the guy that screws up the Grinch <laughs> yeah like I was like if it was just the book it's like at least you're like oh you know like he didn't do a good adaptation but it was like there's there was a lot of things for it there's there the beloved Chuck Jones classic which was was in me too but, you know, then I was like, but it's a really cool opportunity to sort of build out a, a different version of it and and also, you know, build a, a bigger world. You know, that was like part of what we were doing is like, oh, we get to really explore Whoville and really expand on it and make this sort of a more expansive um, experiential movie of, of it. So and it did and it did OK at the box office it did OK. It did. It ultimately, did well. Yeah, About half a half a billion according to IMDb Pro. So, not yeah. not bad for a job you didn't want. <laughs> you know, I, the, you know the credit goes to so many people. Sure, that's what's so much fun with animation is it's like there's so many incredible artists from you know layout to you know animators to you know the sort of concept artists and art directors and the vocal talent. Like, there's so many people. That's the greatest thing of animation is like, you know, it's like you spend years and years and years. And just when you're like about to shoot yourself going like, I have to fucking look at another storyboard, you know, <laughs> it's like, it, then you start to see like, uh, then it's like right when you're there, it's like you start animating. And then right when you're sort of like going like, oh, they'd start lighting and rendering and like, it's like right when you're sort of getting tired and cut, you know, like, when do we get to see the final, you know, right when you're just sort of desperate to see final images, uh, they always seem to pop up and you go like, oh, okay, this is why we're doing it. Cause it's like, it does just look incredible. It's like when you get to sit in dailies and see the finished stuff, it's like, it's just so amazing. You That's know? But it, it's like, a, it's a pain. You have to be patient. No, it's and now it's a system. I mean, when they were coming up, you know, when when Disney Animation was kind of setting it all up, it, they didn't even know what they were doing. But like now, it's there's a system, and I have a, a good buddy of mine that worked at 
Disney for 12 years as an animator. Um, he did he did uh, environments. He was the lead in environments. And I would go into Disney animation and I'd walk around and I'd see the different departments and I'm just like in awe. It's just in awe of what you yeah. could do. And as a director, because I, I, I know that they did this at Disney Animation, is they would have a board up and they would give the directors a stack of cash, of like paper cash. And they would have all the sequences of the movie up. And they go, you can put money on what sequences you want to spend a little extra money on, but this is all the money you get. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So they would get to choose like this action sequence. I want a lot more, more attention to, as opposed to just less, can I kind of get it through? And does anything like that happen with, that was just a Disney thing. That definitely did not happen because I would have just walked out with the money. <laughs> You're like, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to put it in my pocket. And, it was fake. Know. Scott, it was fake money. It was fake. Yeah. Money. We right. could talk about this later, but I'm going to take my wife out too much. Um, <laughs> no, we didn't do that. I mean, you know, it's something that, but that, the, that those conversations are sort of collective. Right. You know, you're, you're sort of. And you know, I mean, to me, it's just something you inherently know, whether it's a live action movie or a, or a, right. or a animated movie, you're, you, you're sitting there going like, Hey, we have limited resources. We have limited money. We have limited time. So it's like, you know, you, you know, and in animation too, there's that sense of like, well, if you want this sequence to be freaking huge, then you better get going now. Right. Because there's a pipeline. There's a moment where it's like with the movie, it's just like it's cut off. It's like you can't add new shots. You can't they won't make it through in time. So, you know, there's a lot of thought constantly put into it of going like, oh, this is, you know, we want to do a big shot here. Like we were doing some there's a big, huge, like kind of drone crane shot and Grinch where we're like going through this pond of people skating and then all the way up to the, like, so you have to sort of like get all that stuff arranged because all the extra, you know, it's, it's, it's basically live action. You know, you have to sort of make sure that you've made those decisions to be like, Oh, we want to set the tone here. and want to do that here. Um, and part of that is, has more to do with just like, making movies with financial limitations you know right which is most people i mean there are people who don't you know there's there are filmmakers who are given the sort of do whatever they want and i don't necessarily like i mean nobody's offered me that I don't yeah. think it's never, these are not problems so, uh, you or i have <laughs> yeah this is not a problem that i have and i don't think it's a problem that i'll face but I do think the limitation is th- those limitations can be really, really. It helps you. For me, it just helps you focus on the story, right? And go like, hey, like you better know what's important, you know, or you better figure it the fuck out really quickly because you are in charge of like trying to argue why people should. You know, we need more assets. We need this. We need that. If you're the person who's going to be driving and pushing for things. Like, it, you know, the limitations will help you figure it out because you go like, all right, like we, we, you know, like we can, we can reduce the amount of shots here. We can do this here. We don't need that many extras there. Like we can make that choice because like, you know, I really want this to look like this or I want this to sort of exist there. So, I, you know, but no, nobody came around with cash. 
<laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, now, I just have a few questions I, I ask all my guests, uh, some yeah. like a rapid fire. If you could go back to your younger self, what would you tell him? Um, somebody else asked me this recently. Not, not to, you know, like call you unoriginal. Or <laughs> you know, Scott, I'm quite offended. No, it's okay. <laughs> I just, no, I meant like more like ah, somebody just asked me this. And, you know, I'm, it, it's probably more insight in the way my brain works. Is like I take it so literally. I don't, but it's like that I'm like, I don't think I would say anything. I don't know what I would say. I don't know what could, because everything I know is, is, or every, every, every like conclusion I've reached that has any value in my life is because of the experiences I went through, you know? And I don't, and I think you can go back to your younger self and be like, you know, buy Apple. (laughs) I guess that would be. (laughs) Buy Apple at $7. Buy Apple at $7. Buy buy Facebook at 30. You have $3,000 from your car sale. I know this won't make any sense, but buy Apple. (laughs) No, buy buy, in 2021, there's going to be a GameStop. Buy GameStop. (laughs) It would probably be that. Like, as opposed to giving me any fucking advice of like how your career, because here's the thing, like my career in a way makes no sense. Even to me, like, it's not like, there's no linear line. Like I can't point to it and tell somebody like, this is what I did. You should do this. Yeah. It's just like, I, I followed my curiosity, which is what I do now. You know, I still just sort of go, I'm not, I'm not sort of, I'm driven by my curiosity of like animation or this or that. And I kind of like, which is why my IMD page is kind of a weird mishmash of producing and documentaries. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I love documentaries. Like I'll go in that direction. Like, you know, I, I sort of follow, I don't, I'm not like, I'm not like I make horror movies or I make, you know, rated R comedies. Like I just love, I, from the time I was a kid, like I just love film. I mean, my, my sort of taste in music is the same as, in film which is really diverse i just watch a lot of different things and so yeah i mean honestly that at the end of the day you know I, I i try to hack the whole sit like what's the path i can take okay should i try to do what kevin did no okay maybe what i do what robert did no okay maybe what i do with richard link like and i'm not the only filmmaker we all do that like at one point yeah. you know you start looking at other people like you guys were doing it with richard you guys were doing it with slacker like literally that was what yeah. you were trying to do but at the end of the day it's 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 a lot of luck right place right time like you happen to run into kevin smith you two happen to gel. He happened to have a script about clerks and then, and then, and off you go. And it happened in the early nineties when that was a fertile ground for something like that to kind of take off. Like you said, would that, if it would happen in 85, is there a, does it happen in, in 2005? But you know, I always tell people this, like if Robert shows up with El Mariachi today, I'm not sure he breaks through with El Mariachi today. But in 91, a $7,000 action movie shot on 16 was exactly what the industry needed. It was the proof like, oh, my God, someone made a movie for $7,000 or the story they sold, at least. I think if, I think if Robert was, if you, you know, to me, like if you transplanted like the $7,000 version of El Mariachi that Robert would have made, 
would have been very, very different. So, with, today, with today's tech, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He could calculate that he could have sort of done it because like, yeah. the, there's, like the thing that I still go back to and, you know, it's not about people's career paths are, look, it is about who you know. Making connections, like meeting people, having like a, a deep sort of list of people that you know, people that are making movies. I mean, it starts in film school. Like mm-hmm. if you know enough people, you're working on shorts. And like it doesn't even matter if the short's very good. You're just trying to get experience, right? Like that's like you're a good worker. You work hard. You can fucking push a dolly, whatever. Like for me, like that's a big part of it. But I also think like and this is specific to people who want to be writers, you know, writer, writer, directors and stuff like that. I think it's like, you know, the thing, it goes back to having that unique voice. Like what, mm-hmm. what's the story that only you can tell, you know? And at the end of the day, like El Mariachi slacker is like very, like all those guys had one thing in common, which is they really wanted to tell that story, not because it, they really wanted to tell that story. And not because it was the the, I, the cheap idea. That to me is like always like people are like, yeah. Well, I really want to make this, but they're like, but then I, you know, I came up with a cheap idea. It's like, well, no, no, no. Like, come up with ideas. And like, if all your ideas are eighty million dollars, then you might have a problem. But, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, but but like, if you if like if your passion isn't in these cheap ideas, like everyone's gonna know it. <laughs> You're absolutely, you know, I've never really, I really never quantified it the way you you stated because you're absolutely right. Like, you know, when I, when I make my movies, you know, the ones that sing are the ones that I really wanted to do. And the ones that were like, I'm going to try to be this guy or this is going to get me to that next level or this is going to be the one that gets me the agent or the man. Those don't, they fall, they fall flat, you know, and the ones that have all the passion and the voice are the ones that people really connect to. And that's something that filmmakers trying to break in today really don't get. Um, and and that is the thing that will cut through. You're absolutely right. That is the thing that will cut through all the noise. Well, because if you're, I mean, look, if you have to go talk about the movie you're making, you know, that's the simplest part of the equation. It's like, if you're passionate about it, you it for hours. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you made it as some sort of vehicle, I mean, the amount of people I've known through the years, like, well, I'm doing this, but what I really want to do is that. And I'm like, I was like, I get it. But I was like, you have to find, like everything should be an extension of your passion. You can do things just to learn, right? Those are the two levels. If you want to go make a film that you're just like, cause you can, cause you can afford to do it and learn and become a better director or become a better whatever, there's value in that, right? But you have to know that the end result of that is that you learned, you know? If you want to, the other reason to make something is like, what are you fucking excited about? Like, what are you passionate about? Like, what kind of stories are you passionate about? Like, is it, you know, like if you love horror movies, then it's like, that's great. But what's the personal version of a horror, horror movie? You know, I mean, if you look at Jordan Peele, it's like, 
that's why those movies are fucking amazing because they're personal. Like it's not, he didn't invent horror. He basically was like, but this is my perspective of what a horror movie is. Right. And suddenly everyone's like, holy shit. Like you are the, you are the only version of you. And I'm not saying you're a unique snowflake, but you are all unique snowflakes. Uh, we're all unique snowflakes. Your perception or your take or your sort of joke on, um, like if you throw something on a table and everyone makes a joke, like there'll be 10 different jokes, right? Like that's what makes you different. And the more you sort of push yourself to find that, and that to me is like, was a very long process. Like I, at 21, like I did not have a voice. Like I, like, and it was having Kevin was like such a great, that was part of the benefit of standing next to Kevin is because I was like, that's what a voice is. Like, that's what it means. That's what it means to have a voice. That's what it means to cut through the noise, right? Because all the rest of it is noise. And so it, I was very aware of how long it would sort of take me to develop my own voice. Like I, the whole time I was like going like, that's a voice, right? Kevin's a voice. Like no one can argue that. You may not like the voice, but the motherfucker has got his own voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a million people, the Coen brothers, like all, yeah. you know, like they, they, a, yeah, Rick, Richard Linkletter, all those guys. Yeah, they all have a voice. You're absolutely right. Even, even Robert, who, even Robert, who makes those kind of action and stuff. But that's, that, that's his voice inside all those movies. You can learn how to, you can learn how to edit. You can learn all the technical stuff and all that stuff is smart. Like that's basically just making you better at your job. If you want to tell your story, if you, if you want to be a writer, director, you know, you really have to find your, the most important thing you do is find your voice. Um, Two last questions. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Find your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. (laughs) Find the voice. To find your voice. And like part of the reason about finding your voice is that finding your, through the process of finding your voice, what you will do is create confidence in what your voice is. You know, it's, it's like, there's two, there's, there's all these, there's all these positives that come towards really taking a deep dive and be like, what kind of stories do I want to tell? Like, what do I get emotional when I watch? Like, what do I want to create, recreate on the screen? Like, you know, some of those basic questions of like, oh, when I watch it, like, I love to make people piss their pants laughing. I like to make people shit their pants. <laughs> I'm fucking like, <laughs> scary. Or, like, if, if these are all the, like, we're all here because we're like, movies make us, um, movies evoke emotions. They make us feel things. And I really, like, for me, part of the process was going like, well, what are, what are the things that I love to feel when I'm watching a movie? And therefore, that's the thing that I want to recreate in my own movies. And so locating that, like, you know, what's the thing that you're like, oh, fuck. Like, when I go watch a movie and, and like, I'm terrified, like, I just walk away and I'm, like, I'm joyous. I'm so excited. If that's it, then you should focus on that. Like, if you're like... No, I love to make people feel like life is worth, you know, like I like to make people cry. I don't, you know, like all those things exist. And it's sort of, it's almost like finding your voice to me is more about focusing on like, what's the emotions that you like to evoke in the kind of content you're making? Because that's part of like what will help you fill out the kind of stories you want to tell, which is like, what's the emotional impact you're looking for? 
<clears throat> anger, rage, love, all, like all of those things. Like those are the things to sort of think about. So yeah, finding, <clears throat> finding, finding my voice was like probably the biggest thing. And three of your favorite films of all time. Um, I mean, there's so many. Um, I'll I'll just sort of rattle some off. Um, well, I'll, I'll go way back to the beginning. Like Time Bandits is a huge, <laughs> so good. Terry, man, Terry Gilliam, such oh. a huge. Um, the ones that like you know, for me, it's always like ones that shift your perception about you know what a film is are the ones that really stick in my mind. And there's tons of amazing movies that don't necessarily do that. But like Time Bandits was a big one for me. Um, Raising Arizona was another one, like really early on where I was like, I just, I just ate it up. And, you know, and then, man, I can go on and on. I mean, like Fight Club is a one later on in life where I was like, so completely just like, fuck. What am I doing? Yeah, just like, just like, fuck, I want to watch, like, and then I just watched it like a hundred times, but, you know, eight and a half was another, like, right. just mind-blowing sort of experience from, like, you know, where you're in that space, you're like, this is a movie? Like, that was the exciting part about being young, is like, you're constantly, like, watching so many things, and that experience of being like, wait, 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 I'm constantly redefining what a movie is through everything I'm watching. Like that's the sort of, those are the movies and like time bandits, raising Arizona eight and a half and fight club is one where I was like, fuck, I was sort of being like, Oh, okay. Like I'm, I'm kind of pivoting and going like, this is a movie. I mean, when I, when I, I mean, I had, I've had Jim who wrote fight club on the show and uh, I just geeked out with him and Fincher and basically anything Fincher does, you just walk by and just like, what, what's this, yeah. what are we, what are we doing? Really? <laughs> I mean, yeah. and I've talked to some, I've talked to some amazing filmmakers and anytime Fincher comes up, they just say, it's like, I don't, I just, I don't even know what we're doing here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's having one of those, like, it's like Kubrick when Kubrick would pop out with a movie, you're just like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. hundred <laughs> Scott, man, thank you so much for being on the show, brother. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. And I wish you uh, nothing but success exploring your new wants and, and and things that excite you wherever wherever you go and I hope that IMDb um, account gets a little bit more broad and, and crazy <laughs> me too thanks for having me I want to truly thank Scott for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs on the tribe thank you again Scott it, it is because of Scott and Kevin that I am here as an independent filmmaker. They were an amazing inspiration to not only me, but to a generation and generations of independent filmmakers. So Scott, I tip my hat to you. Thank you, my friend. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 453. And if you haven't already, please head over to filmmakingpodcast.com, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a good review for the show. It really, really helps us out a lot. Thank you again for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. 